You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. And welcome to the show, listeners. So we're just going to jump straight into today's interview with Chris Cook. Hello, Chris Cook. Yeah. Great. I'm really looking forward to this. The Institute for Security and Resilience Studies. Yeah. What's your position there? Uh, Senior research fellow with a background in, long background in energy market regulation um, and uh, market development, actually. Yeah, and I was interested to see you've got a background in forensic accounting as well. That's a topic of often wanted to cover on this show <laughs> well that's where i kicked off i started out in insolvency from there into fraud investigation company fraud and that was in, i was in just the right place at the right time in london in the mid 80s when we started regulating markets for the first time and i was brought in as part of a team of regulators to start looking at commodity markets which were unregulated at that time uh-huh. i ended up as director of what's now the biggest global energy exchange it was called the International Petroleum Exchange then. And during that time, I was responsible for introducing the natural gas futures contract there. So sorry about that. Um, anyway. My, oh my. All right. Well, as we roll into this interview, can you perhaps explain to us why you're a little bit apologetic about uh, your role in the world of gas futures contracts? Well, it's not just gas futures. It's the whole idea of energy as a commodity. Uh, buying and selling energy as a commodity uh, is completely misconceived. This is the point. Uh, and it leads to perverse outcomes on a cosmic scale. I remember when I introduced the, it was called the balancing point uh, contract in the UK, a very successful contract actually. And when I was just about to leave, we were looking at the electricity market. And I said then that it was ridiculous. There is no way you can have a market in electricity as a commodity because uh, it's how can you buy and sell electrons, point one. And point two, it would inevitably lead to uh, middlemen making extortionate profits at the expense of uh, the end users. It was completely artificial. And, well, 20 years later, we see the result, uh, not just in the UK, but everybody else that's taken this model. And it's uh-huh. a complete disaster. Yeah. It operates in... In nobody's interest other than the middleman. Yeah, well, I would have thought that uh, the futures contracts would have added some sort of certainty to the market for producers and provided an element of cheap credit to underwrite future developments for them. That, that is the theory, and occasionally that's the practice. I mean, the, you know, you've got the spot price and you've got the forward, you know, the forward price, but of course, you know, there, there isn't really any... Uh, any futures price in electricity so you've got to, you've got a forward market in it but because you can't store it right um and in gas you can store after a fashion coal is easy you just put it in heaps on the ground and of course oil is oil sits in tanks but you know the less possibility there is to store something the more volatility there is and of course it's the volatility um if you go back in the history of the oil markets to the 70s there were no intermediaries until 1970 the oil shock and mark rich came along you know and so we saw uh, intermediaries come in. Now, if you think about it, if producers want stable high prices, consumers want stable low prices, 
But for a middleman, stability is death, okay? Um, because they make their money from volatility. And if there isn't any, they actually create it. And what then happened was the futures markets came along in the 80s to provide a solution to that volatility, to allow people to manage it by you know, using futures contracts. But all that did, after a, a while, was bring in leverage into the market and speculation on, in futures, which hadn't been there before. So the volatility that we had before, Carl, was amplified many-fold, okay? And that got even worse when we saw passive investment via funds come in in 2001 in the last 10 years. So this is summed up by a very interesting uh, statistic or some facts. The oil price in 2007 was $80 a barrel. It went up to $147 a barrel by July of 2008, and it collapsed by December to $35 a barrel, only to go back up again to $80. So it went up, you know, it varied between $80, $147, $35, and $80 again in two years. And in that time, supply and demand of oil varied, physical oil varied by less than 3%. Mm. So what we've seen is the creation of a cosmic um, source of volatility um, because of the introduction of leverage into the markets. Um, by these financial markets. They are completely and utterly dysfunctional. They are manipulated on a cosmic scale. Uh, but the good news is I think we're already seeing an evolution away from them. Okay, well, before we get to that good news, can you give us a bit of background to uh, this 1970s, 1972 period with the introduction of these middlemen and give us a little bit of detail on Mark Rich, particularly for listeners who mightn't have heard of uh, his activities and his infamous pardon. <laughs> well, in 1973, uh, up, until, up until then, um, you had the, um, what they call the Seven Sisters. The market was what's called vertically integrated. So the, the big boys basically got the oil from wherever it was in, or, you know, in Iran and Saudi Arabia mainly. Um, they got it at ludicrously cheap prices because of the concessions they had. They basically, extort, you know, they, they made huge amounts of money at the expense of the producing nations. Um, so extracted that oil for next to nothing. It was maybe it was less than three dollars a barrel back then, and. Um, and then they refined it themselves and distributed it themselves. And that was called a vertically integrated market, right? There, there were no middlemen then. The, the Seven Sisters just basically uh, got the oil from the cheapest they could, backed by military force, and then you know, created the, the oil market we had then. What then came along in 1973 was OPEC. They'd been around for a bit. But at that price, we had, if, if, I'm old enough to remember what was called the oil shock when there was an embargo by the Saudis during a Middle Eastern war. The, I think it was the Six-Day War in Israel. And they basically said, right, um, we're going to put an embargo on shipping oil to the U.S. And what we then saw was a massive 400% increase in oil prices from $3 to $12 a barrel. And that threw everybody. I mean, back then, there, were, there was as much um, noise then about energy and got to do something about energy as there is now, um, backed by the whole carbon CO2 thing. You know, it was as controversial then as it is now because the price had gone up 400% in very short time. And in response to that, what we, what we then saw was 
for the first time, the entry, the, the producers started selling to middlemen who then sold on. The market began to develop uh, whereby uh, the producers weren't selling, uh, tying down their, um, their market just to, you know, to these vertically integrated buyers. What they were starting to do was to sell it to other people. And Mark Rich was the first to actually come in and buy oil and sell it on to somebody else. And, and that's what he, he started to do. And many, many, many more traders then started to come in and acquire cargo. So an oil price, an oil market started to, to develop at that time. Um, and, but equally, different countries responded in different ways to what was called the oil shock. Um, the Americans were really crafty. Well, this is what Kissinger actually went to the Shah of Iran. He, he wanted the oil, he, he kept the oil price high. At twelve dollars, you make because the, the the Saudis were prepared to actually reduce it back to three, and the reason they did it was they'd had this oil shock, and at three dollars a barrel they couldn't develop unconventional oil, i.e. in Alaska. When I say unconventional, I mean oil somewhere else. So um, in Alaska, in the Gulf, uh, the uh, U.S. Gulf, and of course in the U.K. North Sea, you couldn't develop it at three dollars a barrel, but you could at twelve. But the other thing which they did, the Americans did, which was genius really, was they created what's called the petrodollar. They um, agreed with the Saudis that the proceeds would be reinvested in the U.S. So that, because it, it really doesn't matter what you price oil in that much, it's what happens to the proceeds that matters. So all, this, all these petrodollars flowed back into the U.S. and enabled them to fund the creation of uh, new supplies, which basically made them more independent of the Saudis and the Iranians. And that pro this is precisely what Obama did more recently. It's not been recognized that that's what happened since. So, so back then, we saw the coming of the middleman. And over the decade that followed to the mid-80s, more and more middlemen came into the market, and the volatility started to go up. And that led to a demand for... Um, Exchanges. So the New York Mercantile Exchange was the first, and the International Petroleum Exchange, where I worked, uh, came along in the 80s and was the second. And gradually we introduced these derivative contracts to manage the risk, and then the market evolved even further with the entry of um, investment banks into the market what they call Wall Street refiners. And, and there was an evolution of markets which gradually led to the markets becoming financialized and commoditized, but the entry of the middlemen into the market caused the volatility and the entry of the exchanges amplified this volatility. So that's a long and rambling explanation. Well, I must say, delving through your Caspian Energy at the Crossroads presentation that listeners will be able to find on the show notes at earthsharing.org.au tomorrow, uh, that I was floored by the fact that uh, in 2004 this financialization of the commodities market uh, swept through which was just two years after Enron exploded and uh, you just wonder how this was justified and ushered through this next uh, level of uh, speculative middlemen storming into the commodity markets. Right well Enron was a a magnificent fraud. 
You know, it went on for 10 years or more and people didn't realize what they were doing because 70% of Enron's income didn't actually exist. What they were doing was they were using um, a type of financial contract called a prepay agreement, which is a wonderful thing if used uh, transparently, <laughs> but is a, a complete disaster if it's not transparent because basically... Um, it's a financial contract that isn't either a futures contract or conventional ownership. It enables you to fund anything uh, simply through prepayment, okay? Like selling vouchers returnable in payment for something, okay? Um, that's what prepay is. And they were able to hoodwink, defraud both investors and creditors because they were essentially raising funds on the back of their um, income, uh, which didn't appear on their balance sheet. And Enron was a massive fraud in that respect, almost from the beginning, uh, because they actually were able, as the smartest kids on the block, as they used to be called, to actually raise, uh, to fund themselves using prepay. And that bubble, which the, the bubble, uh, it wasn't a bubble, that fraud ended in 2001. But the technique of prepay then started to be used in the market. This has not been visible. I've written about this quite widely. But it, the mainstream press have not mentioned it because, ever because basically it's an allegation of fraud. Um, and the Saudis have been using just this same technique of prepay in the market. That's, that is why we've seen the bubble from 2009 right through to 2014 that was a bubble, and it was a manipulated bubble. <clears throat> and people would say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. People can't ever do that. But, you know, the, the tin market was kept inflated by the cartel of producers for almost 35 years until 1985. It was a cartel, and they basically bought... If, put it this way, Carl. <clears throat> if you're a producer, if you can inflate prices, you will. That's what cartels do. And they will use any mechanism they can find. If people are prepared to give them free money, they will do that. <clears throat> and we saw Hamanaka in the copper market. For 10 years, he manipulated the, the copper market on a massive scale. Somebody blew the whistle after five years, and they still went on doing it for five more. I blew the whistle on the oil market mm, 2000, well, at least six, seven years ago. Uh, I predicted in 2011 the price would collapse to 45 to $50 a barrel um, because I said the price was being artificially maintained, which it was. And when the price uh, collapsed, uh, when, when quantitative QE ended, which was the pumping of money into the market by the Fed, essentially, once that ended, I said, the price would collapse, and it did. And the price was maintained above $80 as a matter of policy in my view, by Obama, um, very smart policy, because he knew that above $80, it was viable for new production to come in. And that's what it did. They, the Yanks actually came in with an additional 5 million barrels a day uh, in about three or four years. It was magnificent what they did. Through the shale, shale oil. Precisely. That industry was created in a matter of three years or so, mobilized very rapidly, mind you, at high cost. But the other thing, Carl, that high prices did is actually start to cut consumption. Again, it's not widely known, but they reduced consumption, the Americans did, by 2 million barrels a day. 
within about three years because at, at high prices, people start doing, you know, doing other things. You know what they say, that the cure for high prices is high prices. And the cure for low prices is low prices because production starts being cut at low prices. So you always get this boom and bust and bubbles in, in markets because you know, the price goes to a low level, production gets shut in, uh, the price then uh, clears, as we say, and then back up it goes again until it reaches a high price and then people can't afford it anymore. And, you know, and boom and bust, boom and bust. That's the way commodity markets work because of the, the presence of the middleman. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Kyle Fitzgerald. And this week, we're joined by Chris Cook. And if you haven't guessed, he's an energy economist out of Scotland, where he's a senior research fellow at the Institute for Security and Resilience Studies. Chris, what you're talking about, uh, this maintenance of prices, uh, it's a form of artificial scarcity, whether it's uh, tin being hoarded or gas in Australia. Uh, the producers there are being criticised for similar sort of practices, uh, whilst their counter-argument is that uh, shale gas uh, production has been suppressed by environmental regulations. But listeners have been asking me about uh, the change from domestic pricing to global pricing parity and what role that's really played in uh, shaking up our energy market. Uh, to add to this, uh, we've had our largest power station, the, the one of the world's dirtiest, Hazelwood, closed with less than 90 days' notice. So there's been a lot of pressure on our energy supplies as uh, these gas producers uh, uh, look to the global markets where they can get this higher pricing. Uh, and despite all the investment in rooftop solar, uh, there's a lot of conjecture over uh, these pricing pressures. So is global pricing parity a good thing for a resource-abundant nation like Australia? Um, <laughs> the answer is that the market can work um, but the market we have of a commodity market uh, does not work because it actually creates perverse incentives uh, for the for the middlemen at everybody else's expense. But there is the possibility of another market architecture, and this is achievable quite straightforwardly, actually, um, by applying a different set of market rules and, and principles. Um, now, what I mean by this is that there's more than one way to skin a cat. It is possible. You don't have to sell oil or gas, which is a commodity. When you think about it, what is it you and I use, Carl? We don't use oil and gas, and we don't even use electricity because it will kill us. What we do use is heat or cooling, in your case, because it's a bloody sight. <laughs> it's a bloody sight cooler here, I can tell you. So we use heat and cooling, and we use power, you know, transport, mobility, for instance. And, you know, electro-communications and other forms of energy. And I think of that as energy as a service, okay? Um, the question is, how do we actually get to deliver that service? And what uh, the Danes did, this is because they were affected massively by the 1973 oil shock. What the Danes did was they said, uh, they had what I call a, an oh shit moment. Um, all of a sudden their raw costs, because they were burning a lot of oil then, went up by 400%. And this was a matter of national survival to them, you know, how, because all of a sudden, you know, it, it could have happened again. It could have gone up 10 times more, which it has done since. So the Danes took a very pragmatic decision and they applied 
a policy across all energy policy, which I recommend to Australia and every other country. And in fact, people are listening, particularly in the Middle East. What, what they did was they said, right, we're going to organize a principle whereby for any given use of energy as a service, we will minimize the oil and gas that we use. And I call that the least resource cost or least carbon fuel cost principle. And that was mandated across all areas of, of you know, they, they, they then started to build out renewables at a time that nobody did because, of course, that reduced carbon fuel use. They started to conserve energy, for instance, by capturing hot water from the power stations and distributing it. It actually cut the use of natural gas and, and, and oil that they were burning. Uh, they doubled the prices of cars and, and, and fuel. And using the money which they collected, they then invested massively in public transport and bicycle lanes and things like that. And it, over 40 years, the Danes actually, um, even though GDP doubled, um, they reduced energy use now. And their carbon fuel use has, has, has fallen very significantly. And that is an example of successful policy, the application of what I call the least resource cost. Now, that's not what a market economy that we typically use does. We use the least dollar cost organizing principle. And that's what gives us this commodity, um, commoditized market, and it leads to perverse outcomes. There's a lot of talk about energy as a form of currency is that where you're going with this? Well, that's a very astute comment. That's one of the things that comes out of this. But the other thing, this is the key point, is the supply of energy rather than the sale of it as a commodity. Uh, yes, in order to fund things, yes, you do monetize energy itself. But you don't monetize raw forms of energy. Why? Because you don't use it. You can only monetize things that you use. Okay. So you can monetize the, maybe the, the, the power and the heat and the cooling, which is what I call energy as a service, but you can't monetize oil and gas in quite the same way. That's a bit tricky to grasp there, Chris. Uh, are you talking about measuring it as a British thermal unit, a BTU? Can you give us another angle on that one? <laughs> what I'm talking about, it, it's a bit difficult to get your head around because it's a paradigm shift. But, you know, what does, you know, the dollar symbol... Right? What does that represent? It doesn't represent anything, does it? It's just a symbol. You all know what a dollar is worth because you use it in everyday experience all the time. But what does it represent? It doesn't represent anything other than maybe debt, actually. That's what a dollar represents, a unit of debt. And what I'm proposing is that maybe a country could go on what I call the energy standard. And what that means is that symbol of the dollar, <clears throat> Aussie dollar, might start representing, let's say, X kilowatt hours of electricity. Now, when I say representing electricity, I mean the energy equivalent, because electricity is only a form of energy. In simple terms, I say, let's use energy to keep score. It's keeping score. Energy cost is about keeping score of transactions in energy instead of in some symbol or other. And it's very easy. Everything has an objective energy cost. And that's what the Danes started doing. They started saying, well, this thing is wasting us energy. How can we reduce the energy cost? And that's what they started to do. Uh, they applied all sorts of techniques. And you, you guys could do it. Everybody can do this. You can say, right, well, we're currently using this much en energy in, say, Parramatta or whatever. How can we reduce that bill? 
That's what I'm doing here in Linlithgow, by the way, Carl, where I live. We, apply, we call it the Linlithgow Natural Grid. Not National Grid, Natural Grid Project. We're saying we're using six and a half million pounds a year here. If we reduce our consumption of energy, then it's win-win because the consumers can pay less. The, um, the uh, people who actually deliver it to your door, they get some of the gain and the people who finance it get some of the gain. And my historical research, this is a really interesting thing. Do you know what, you, you know James Watt, the famous Scottish inventor, mm-hmm. invented the steam engine? Yep. Do you know what his business model was? James Watt um, took his pumps, his new pumps, to the Cornish tin mines because they had a water problem and they were using very inefficient pumps. And he, he didn't sell his pumps to them. He gave them the use of his pumps. He supplied his pumps in exchange for a third of the coal they saved, right? So he was essentially swapping them the use of his technology for a third of the coal savings. Mm. Now, that was really interesting. That was what I call the first smart trade, where people started to swap the value of the fifth fuel, as Exxon call it, which is intellectual fuel. <laughs> he swapped the value of the, I call it pumping as a service, you know, this whole point about a service economy. He didn't, he didn't sell pumps as a commodity, so he had no interest in the damn things working after the warranty ran out. He supplied the pumps as a service, in exchange for a third of the coal he saved. Now, Carl, I advocate a new generation of, not sales, of swaps. I'll give you examples, because I deal with Iran, for instance, quite a lot, and they're listening to what I have to say about the market. And they, um, they started entering into swaps. They supply gas into Armenia, next door nation, and they swap it, for a proportion of the electricity that uh, is generated. It's a gas for power swap. So they don't sell gas, they supply it. And equally, they have oil coming into the north of Iran and they swap it to the supplier for oil coming out into the Persian Gulf. So they don't sell that oil, they swap it for oil coming out. And that form of transaction you can do in Australia perfectly easily. And you can do it in addition to the existing market. I'm not proposing replace it. I'm proposing a complementary additional set of tools, which will gradually mean that the people in the market, I believe, will migrate to the system that I'm describing. Because, Carl, this is already going on. I was in Istanbul at the World Energy Congress last October, and the big boys there are all talking about what I'm telling you about, which is energy as a service. They were saying the top people, you know, the Scott Foster of the United Nations was saying that we're moving to energy as a service because energy as a commodity makes no sense. And the reason this works for the big boys, the utilities, is this, that actually energy as a commodity is hugely intensive in finance capital. The networks, the power stations are all massively capital intensive. Buying and selling gas as a commodity is massively capital intensive in terms of market risk and credit risk and credit risk. But if you become a service provider, you don't need any capital. You're just arranging swaps 
the capital comes, and this is all the way to your point about currency, the capital comes from basically selling future uh, electricity as energy credits. Imagine a credit or a promise which is returnable in payment for 10 kilowatt hours, for instance. You can't use it for delivery, but you can use it uh, as payment for the electricity produced. So what I'm proposing is, and this is what's in the presentations which are available online, I'm proposing a new market architecture, <clears throat> except it's not new. It goes back centuries before the existing abomination that we created, the commodity market, came along. Okay, listeners, well, that was Chris Cook from the Institute for Security and Resilience Studies. Uh, search him out on slideshare.net. You'll find Caspian Energy at the crossroads. Fascinating discussion there, where yet again we see the role of speculative middlemen making easy money. This is the great scourge on this neoliberal agenda. We must curtail it. So we need to tax it away. We need to develop new forms of uh, energy exchange, as Chris just eloquently described to us. So let's get ahead around this and keep delving into ways to make our economic system fairer for everyone. Check earthsharing.org.au for more details.